0: From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today, we're talking about bombs. No, not box office bombs. Bombs themselves.
1: My impression is that most audiences came out of there going, uh, treating it like a a work of fiction. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that happened, but don't necessarily see the relevance to what's happening today. And that's many ways what made the day after also quite remarkable. Through its kind of what-if science fiction fantasy approach, which was borrowed from An earlier feature film called The China Syndrome, it was able to convince audiences to imagine what could be and therefore motivate them to keep that from happening as opposed to what might have been Oppenheimer's very much
0: a history movie. I'm talking with author Tom Schoen about how a gloomy three-hour biopic like Oppenheimer became such a huge hit. And then we'll hear from David Craig about the influence of The Day After on media and the fate of the world. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. 2023 was perhaps a paradigm-shifting year for movies. You might call it the year of the bomb. For over a decade, the box office has been dominated by superheroes, mostly in the form of cinematic universes that linked dozens of movies and streaming series and long, complex mythologies of characters, conflicts, and concepts. In the past few years, this has even meant multiverse concepts, linking the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the Fox X-Men series, and the DC Cinematic Universe with previous Batmans played by George Clooney and Michael Keaton. Everything is now connected. The problem? Audiences finally, after years of predicted superhero fatigue, might just be over it all. The biggest bombs of 2023 were movies like The Flash, Aquaman 2, Shazam 2, and The Marvels. Watching these movies that would have been sure things five years ago crash and burn, made me think about some predictions from a 2013 conversation between pioneers of the blockbuster, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, at the University of Southern California.
1: There's going to be an implosion where three or four, or maybe even a half a dozen of these mega-budgeted movies are going to go crashing into the ground, and that's going to change the paradigm again.
2: And then what does the world look like after that? Well, it, like 2008. <laughs> it's, it's we been, will come back from it, that's what I mean. But you but when, but when what they... you're going to end up with is fewer theaters, bigger theaters... With a lot of nice things, going to the movies it's going to cost you 50 bucks, maybe 100, maybe 150. Like it's going be Broadway like, costs today. Yeah, it's like Broadway or going to uh, you know a football game. The movies are going to be these big ticket items because people will still take their chances, and that's going to be what we call the movie business. But everything else is going to look more like cable television. There's great programming, usually more interesting than what you're going to see in the movie theater. And you can get it whenever you want, and it's going to be niche marketed, which means you can really take chances and do things if you can figure there's a small group of people that will kind of react to this. And, and then it's really a matter of marketing, which is the biggest issue, just to make sure that people know you're there. And, of course, with the Internet, well, the way all the future of communications mm-hmm. and everything is, mm-hmm. there's a whole process for doing that now. So that's, it's basically going to be the, what used to be the movie business, which I include as television and movies. It was the movie, but now it's going to be the television business, which is actually has nothing to do with television the anymore. The content business. It's, going to, it's not going to have cable or broadcast. It's going to be the uh, internet television. You know, there's no difference between movies and television.
0: As perhaps part of the same phenomenon, a kind of tentpole fatigue, movies like Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts, and Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, all underperformed, despite some of the highest budgets in cinematic history. Rather than the predictable hits, two wild cards emerged victorious in the year of the bomb. And they came out on the same day. I think actually start your day with Barbie, then go straight into Oppenheimer, and then Barbie Chaser. My suggestion would be Barbie first, Oppenheimer for lunch, and then, and then a Barbie Chaser. Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer both released on July 21st, 2023. Two movies that could not be more tonally opposite, and yet became entwined in popular culture as a bundled phenomenon known as Barbenheimer both wildly overperformed expectations and are continuing to ride that wave all the way through awards season.
2: Hi Barbie! They don't
0: stop coming. Hi Ken! Hi Barbie! On paper, I find myself better able to understand how something like Barbie became the massive hit that it is. It's a light, funny, goofy movie, and though we don't live in a time where there's generally big box office for mainstream comedies, the prospect of this kind of counter-programming is cause for celebration for people who like to laugh at the movies whereas you probably didn't hear a whole lot of laughter coming from the theater next door to Barbie, which was playing Oppenheimer. This is a national emergency. Didn't
1: need a charge.
0: Christopher Nolan's latest epic is different in several ways from his run of hits leading up to it, the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. Oppenheimer is his longest movie to date, three hours long. It is rated R. It's almost entirely made up of people talking, it's based on real history, and it's about as bleak as a movie can get. In the year of bombs, the question is, how did a movie about the atomic bomb and the foreboding thought of nuclear holocaust make nearly a billion dollars and sweep several award ceremonies. What does it say about Christopher Nolan, our contemporary anxieties, and the relationship audiences have with nuclear war going back through popular culture over the past several decades? After the break, I'm talking with Tom Schoen, author of The Nolan Variations, the movies, mysteries, and marvels of Christopher Nolan about the phenomenon of Nolan as one of the few blockbuster auteurs who could not only get a movie like Oppenheimer made, but turn it into a huge hit. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. In today's show, we're looking to explore the strangeness of a year where conventional wisdom flew out the window and a movie like Oppenheimer, a talky, three-hour-long, R-rated historical drama, could become a blockbuster. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't. Surely part of the explanation is rooted in the film's director, Christopher Nolan. You might know him best for co-writing and directing the Dark Knight trilogy, which... Helped him become a popular brand for his often formally complex thrillers like Inception or Interstellar or Dunkirk. He gained initial popularity with his second film, Memento, which told the story of a man trying to avenge the murder of his wife despite the fact that he no longer had the capacity for new short term memories.
2: What's the last thing you do remember? My wife. That's sweet.
0: Dying. The inventive structure took what could have been a straightforward noir and told the story instead in two timelines one in color moving backward and one in black and white moving forward until the two met at the end. He does something similar in Oppenheimer. Looking at Nolan's career, it's hard not to notice the overlap in technique, theme, and tone. Often you'll find a man racked with guilt, usually a widower or grieving someone close to him, trapped in a complex web of conspiracies, corruption, and violence.
2: Even if you get revenge, you're not going to remember it. You're not even going to know that it happened. Who did this to you? You did. You don't know.
0: What is it about Nolan, his style, and his preoccupations that churns out hit after hit? I spoke with Tom Schoen, author of The Nolan Variations, the movies, mysteries, and marvels of Christopher Nolan, to figure it out. I was looking at your review of Oppenheimer, and you, you compared the movie to Citizen Kane, I think, in the in the headline. And in your book, The Nolan Variations, it surprised me that Citizen Kane did not come up in your chapter on the prestige, particularly When I think about that movie, how, you know, it starts with this dead rich guy followed by this jumble of dubiously reliable narrations trying to make sense of him. And then we get that ending where it's the Xanadu filled with hundreds of copies of himself, which I don't know, it seemed like it's sort of in conversation with Wells's rosebud reveal. Do you think about Kane in, in reference to Nolan's filmography in general?
3: Yeah, I do. I mean, I thought about it with Oppenheimer because it struck me as, you know, the kind of model for that very prismatic biopic approach which is to say he's done a kind of cubist kind of biopic you know it's just sort of splinters it into all these pieces and then sort of rearranges it in this sort of mosaic and it sort of struck me as the way that he essentially deals with the fact that he's making a biopic about a bad person simply put that biopics are by in their nature normally uh, about singing the triumphs of some sort of advance in human understanding or science uh, but they tend to be pretty un- unambiguous triumphs. you know. So you might have a film about Stephen Hawking or Einstein, uh, but the idea of doing a biopic about someone like as controversial as Oppenheimer is obviously problematic. And so I don't know whether it was conscious or not, but I can sort of see why Nolan opted for sort of deconstructed biopic form, if you know what I mean. And so Kane is really the model there. How do you make a biopic about a man whose morality is dubious, well, you kind of get as, uh, as as sort of prismatic as Kane is. You know, that's the only approach. He mentioned it to me when I first started talking to him about it and brought up Kane. But, of course, there's a slight danger whenever a filmmaker starts talking about and Kane being influenced, it sort of sounds a bit big-headed, right? So, so it disappeared again. We never talked about it again. And, in fact, it was the trial, you know, the, his movie of the Kafka novel, that kind of popped up more in our conversations. But Wells is in there, certainly. He seemed
0: cagey in the the way that you talk about some of your theories to him when you pitch them to him in your book. He doesn't necessarily like to bring in too much of the biography. But for a guy who's made so many movies about people who are guilty or feel guilty in some way, I, what, what does a guy like Christopher Nolan
3: have to feel guilty about? Where does that come from? I don't honestly know. I mean, I've never really asked him where are the bodies buried, you know, like mm-hmm. kind of. But I do think you know there's a certain britishness to it i don't i think maybe i mean we're kind of quite a guilty culture the idea of somebody who is sort of nagged by guilt but doesn't quite know what for like that seems to be the thing that most energizes some of these kind of nolan plots you know men that don't quite know themselves or don't know the, their own secrets the other thing is that you know oppenheimer is very um You know, he's a sort of typical sort of technocrat in what sense, which is that he numbs himself morally in order to get the job done. And then once the job is done, the moment the job is done, he's sort of hammered by guilt. That makes him, to my mind, a very kind of Nolan figure. You know, I mean, to some extent, it's a bit like the Dark Knight. I mean, this idea of kind of men who summon a certain ruthlessness and then, if you like, and they banish any kind of sense of ethics or morality from what they're doing, and then pay for it later, the prestige is kind of an examination of a certain type of ruthlessness. You know, so are the Dark Knight movies. There's a critique of a certain kind of personality going on in those films. But, yeah, you're right. Nolan definitely does not t- take it back to himself. Uh, you know, why, why it's been so successful as well, it's, it's really quite something...
0: Yeah, that, that's something I was thinking about as I was preparing for this. Does maybe everybody feel some kind of inexplicable guilt? Is he tapping into just like a general anxiety that we all have and that's part of his success?
3: Well, you know, I, it did make me think a lot about kind of drone warfare. You know, I was sort of, you know, as I watched the film and I was sort of thinking, well, why is this resonating in some way? But I think if, you're, if you grow up in America now, you know, and I am American as well as English, did we even see that we'd opened uh, military hostilities in Yemen in this sort of past week. I mean, we heard about it, and you could read about it. There were no images. No war had been declared. It didn't get run through Congress. Lethal action was taken on our behalf somewhere over there. As an American, I think you kind of grow up with that sense. There's a slight kind of princess and the pea quality to some of these military engagements. They don't, impact the homeland, you know, and drone warfare is a perfect example of that. But Oppenheimer is the kind of the great example, you know, somebody who sort of sits in a lab and concocts this machine that on the other side of the world is genocidal. There's something about the way American power is exercised that I think is absolutely kind of caught in that. I was reading a lot about kind of the drone operators. On the one hand, they're quite removed from what is going on, the you know, because they're physically removed from the lethal action that's being taken. But at the same time, they're in constant contact, you know, because those drones hover around for sort of days and weeks. They come away from those engagements, the operators, I mean, with just as much of a sort of lurking sense of like ethical kind of quandary and guilt over sort of what they've done, even though it's just pressing a button, you know. So. I don't know. That that was my own theory is that kind of there's something it sort of taps into this idea that we're not in contact with the kind of consequences of our own kind of government's decision possibly. These
0: seem to be things that people don't necessarily want to confront, right? That distance that we have from some of this is because even if we do feel guilty, we don't really want to look, right? Which kind of leads to the the big question that I think everybody has about Oppenheimer, which is how did it become as successful as it is? How did it become this three-hour-long, talky, R-rated biographical film about our guilt, uh, collectively or individually? How does that make a billion dollars in today's
3: landscape? It's definitely remarkable. I mean, I mean, the film is kind of like a bit of a bait and switch, isn't it? Like it's a trap set for the audience. It feels for its first couple of hours a bit like a kind of tra- a traditional biopic, if one that's been kind of arranged a little bit unusually you know, this man is heading to some kind of significant triumph and so on. And then the moment it happens, the trap springs. And he is both kind of clubbered by, uh, he's haunted by his sense of what he's done. And then the film itself pivots and it suddenly ceases to be a biopic and it becomes this kind of courtroom drama. So it's this kind of great trap. On the one hand, that's a kind of classic Nolan thing, right? That kind of game of wits with the audience. You enter on playing one game, but then the, the rules change halfway through and you have to kind of catch, scramble to kind of catch up. I mean, as to why it's successful, I just don't know. I tend to be a very kind of pessimistic Nolan fan, which is to say, like, if you tell me how they're going to do at the box office, I kind of shrug. I just, And in fact, there's a much more plausible universe, it sometimes seems, in which, you know, Nolan is not a particularly successful. Maybe he's a moderately successful kind of cult sort of indie type of a director you know who struggles to get the budgets for his movies which are kind of incredibly complicated and the critics always love them but they're always sort of wondering when is my guy going to catch on like Nolan could have been that guy he could have been that filmmaker whenever I watch them I'm still struck by that their popularity is kind of anomalous almost and that's kind of what's interesting about him I guess. There's kind
0: of two impulses there, so one is I don't know if there's something emotional that he keeps returning to that people recognize or that they're drawn to he he almost always is putting that into some kind of formally interesting experiment, but also, I don't know there's a lot of people who do things like that, even this year, I think about Killers of the Flower Moon, right that's sort of a another very cynical and guilt ridden look at ugly history. You know, it did all right, but it didn't do anywhere near Oppenheimer numbers. Do, do you have a theory for why why does one land with such a big in such a
3: big way, while the other does okay? I will say that kind of Nolan has a kind of built in audience in a way that other directors do not, but that doesn't really explain it because you know even loyalists might not tag along for the ride if they don't you know if they didn't love the movie and they clearly did. So, yeah, I, I honestly couldn't answer that. I'm still baffled. Right but I think I'm pleasurably baffled. You know, the fact that I don't know quite why these films are as popular as they are kind of goes to why I like them, you know? <laughs> like, because it still is a bit of a pinch-me moment when I think, oh my God, Inception was a huge hit. You know, because a bit of me thinks, I can't see that film being a huge hit because it seems too uh, smart. Like I said, there's another, there's another universe in which, uh, in which Nolan is a kind of cult taste, and I'm always baffled and amazed and pleased for him, obviously, when he turns out to be this sort of huge popular p- taste, but I couldn't pretend to know why. You know? <laughs> it's part of the anomalous puzzle that is those movies, you know? Um, but, uh, I mean, and then, you know, it's also excellent. I mean, that, it's, it's just a very heartening story in one sense. It's like, oh, well, uh, you know, this talky three-hour excellent film, went over really like gangbusters, you know, like, it's kind of crazy. Uh, We're just amazed by that. (laughs) You're like,
0: what? (laughs) I I was trying to think about it, too. Like, what are some of the things that he's tapping into? What are some of the things that people see in his movies that helps them resonate the way they do? And in particular, I was thinking about how Oppenheimer with the nuclear bomb and particularly the ending, It's got this apocalyptic dimension to it where it's able to both be about history, but also make you feel terrified for what might might happen in the future, what feels like inevitably will happen in the future based on the ending. And I was thinking about Apocalypse in his movies in general, and there's kind of an element of it through a lot of them, right? The the Batman trilogy is kind of dealing with societal collapse. You've got literal death of the planet and interstellar. You've got whatever was happening in Tenet. You know, there is something, I think, about the way our, our fears about the end of the world they, you know, they are leading to a lot of popular works right now. And there's something interesting about how Oppenheimer is able to both be about history and have that tap into, I think, some of the anxieties that make something like The Last of Us popular. Do, do you think our relationship with Apocalypse, has that changed? Has that moved Nolan? Is he a guy who's anxious about some of these things where he can be both critical and the guilt can maybe stem from that, but also the fear of anarchy through someone like the Joker or Bane?
3: Definitely. I mean, I, I will say that the only moment in when I was talking to him When, I mean, he keeps his emotions under wraps, right? Like a lot of British people. But in a way that you, you know, like I kind of understand. It's sort of like, you know, still waters run deep kind of thing. But I remember he actually sounded uh, like he was revealing something kind of almost a little bit embarrassing when he talked about his fear of the Joker in The Dark Knight. And I couldn't quite believe him because I sort of thought I couldn't. I said, but surely there's so much to enjoy from that performance and the audience gets such a kick from kind of Heath Ledger's performance, wasn't that part of your response to it too? And he said, no, it terrified me. The whole idea of chaos terrified me. And so I believed him because I pressed him on it and he kind of came back with that. And I could see from the way he was looking that like, no, there was something about that was genuinely terrifying. Like, and the films are, you know, you, you only have to look at, you know, them for a few minutes to realize that Nolan loves order. Right. You know, he loves pattern. Uh, he loves kind of framing things in a you know, in that very kind of classical Kubrickian way where, you know, you can just tell the form is kind of repeated at him. But he loves order. He loves arranged shots and so on. And, um, but he also knows that it, it, if taken to the nth degree, it becomes a kind of madness, you know, and that kind of often comes into those films where the, the protagonist's pursuit of order becomes leads them completely you know over to the sort of dark side the hero of memento inception and so on so he's kind of like a he's ambivalent really about order and i think he's sort of like yeah he's definitely a kind of he's traumatized by chaos but perhaps a little bit ambivalent as to whether about the whether the forces of order are really going to you know something to kind of throw his lot in with so uh, that makes him a very kind of interesting, volatile sort of sensibility. You know, he fears chaos, but he doesn't entirely trust order either. Like that's kind of where, we're, you know, I, maybe that's kind of where we are with him. You know, and why some they tap into something. Um, uh, I mean, certainly that kind of like speaks to 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 me. You know, about kind of uh, what it is to kind of fear the chaos of the world. You know, um, but also be a bit wary about. Uh, sort of the people who would impose order on it for us. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely something. He's definitely tapping into something. I mean, the moment he announces that Oppenheimer as his project, of course, what happens is the Russians start advancing into Ukraine and uh, firing on nuclear power stations. And for the first time uh, in maybe many, many years, we suddenly get scared about nuclear Uh, energy again. You know, I I just couldn't believe it. He had this kind of weird zeitgeist sort of, you know, monitor that tells him that nuclear weapons are suddenly going to be on everybody's radar again. Of course, how did he know that? He didn't. But they seem to suddenly with the Ukraine, you know, what was happening in Ukraine. And and so it's weird. I mean, you know, they do suddenly nuclear weapon... Reed does suddenly seem back on the agenda in a way that it didn't before. He definitely has, and certain filmmakers have this at certain times in their careers. Spielberg had it, you know, during the sort of 80s, and it now seems to be sort of Nolan's turn. And he's obviously a kind of, he's got a sort of slightly darker sensibility than Spielberg did at that time. So I don't know what that says about us. (laughs) The joke I've been making about the movies, Oppenheimer kind of feels like a movie about a
0: smart guy realizing that the world is run by dumb guys. I guess I didn't see it so much as he totally divorces himself from the ethics so much as he assumed that the adults would make adult decisions. And then the Robert Downey Jr. character is a great representation of these are sort of what the adults who make real decisions are actually like. You know, they're petty, obsessed with themselves. They're totally divorced from the ethics a lot of the time of what the world looks like outside of their mirror. And that's scarier than the Joker to me. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah I mean it's great I really love the way and I don't want to spoil this for anybody who hasn't seen it so I'm just going to assume that people have seen it right? but the way that the 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 Lewis Strauss character comes into that film is wonderful, it's one of the best things about it especially if you go in not knowing really too much about the story or who what happened between them or even whether the Downey character is going to turn out to be important but the way he kind of comes into it a bit like smoke almost, you know, like at the beginning, he's just a face and a name and you see him and you've clocked that it's Downey Jr. And you don't have any sense of the significance of him. And then by the end of it, he's got almost demonic, (laughs) you know, kind of characteristics and proportions. He's there at every turn, dogging Oppenheimer, like a, like a kind of a double, you know, almost, I mean, that's definitely a pattern that we've seen in his films before. And that takes me back to the prestige for sure. But this idea that, you know, shadowing you is this kind of this other self, you know, this kind of other person, this guy who absolutely does not have your chest at heart. I mean, he really gets to the heart of what it is to have a nemesis or an enemy. And normally in a movie the villain is very heavily flagged. You know what I mean? They will walk into that bar and swing the door through and you'll know that's the villain because he just did something villainous. But Downey kind of creeps up on you almost, you know, like, and that's a very kind of Nolan-esque sensation. Like, that sense of subtle betrayal that he gets is fantastic. I, I really, um, uh, I get a real thrill from seeing, and his, the way his, essentially his 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 plan or at least his, his antagonism to Oppenheimer is revealed through a kind of montage that reminds me very much of the way that the Joker's plans got revealed in The Dark Knight when we suddenly realised, oh, okay, he's got this plan this master plan that's kind of in three different locations at once and we've just walked straight into it. That's kind of a little bit how the Downey character feels to me, you know, um, that you've you've been in the embrace of this guy all along. So yeah, it's a wonderful piece of characterization and it's a great performance too. But yeah, like this sort of rather... De- he's, I, I think of him as being almost like a kind of... Those two men really understand each other. And by the end of it, you sort of feel like that was sort of Oppenheimer's punishment. Was this guy just dogging him? I mean, I kind of look on it as like, it's crime and punishment, right? That's to, to be very kind of starkly kind of moral about it. He was punished for his discovery. Not directly, But essentially, that's what happened. It was so dark. It was such an ambivalent. It was such a a sort of destructive uh, thing that he discovered that it seems to me almost kind of poetic justice that he didn't end up being celebrated for it. He ended up being punished, you know. And the instrument of that punishment is the Strauss character. And, you know, he's given like the best, I think, kind of insight into Oppenheimer at the end of it. He gets this sort of long speech and, you you know, you really get the sense of like, this is sort of Oppenheimer's, uh, sorry, Nolan's own view of Oppenheimer, uh, which he's kind of careful to, you know, uh, to keep to to himself. But I actually think that it's largely in that speech. And he sort of says, you know, your guilt was just a sham, essentially. Uh, You wanted to, you wanted the kind of the insincere, Sort of guilt of of parading how bad you felt long after you could do it would have made any difference, um, and he kind of really he really nails him, you know what I mean? And I sort of that's the character judgment that's left sort of lingering in the air as the as the film ends. Um, I mean, it does have, I think, a kind of very dark, you know, essentially a very quite a sort of what how should I put it? An unblinking view of Oppenheimer. You know, by the end of it, you feel like you've really seen all these different sort of facets of this very kind of complicated and uh, ambiguous man. So, uh, yeah, just as a character portrait, it's kind of quite in- incredible.
0: You know, we've talked about the prestige fleetingly, but that's that's the one I go back to the most of Nolan's movies. My favorite Nolan movies tend to be the ones I think that he writes with his brother, Jonathan Nolan. And I, I suspect that the two bring out ideas from each other in a way that they don't necessarily get to when they write on their own or collaborate with other people. Do you see notable differences between the solo Nolan-written movies and the ones he writes with Jonathan?
3: I mean, I definitely think that he uh, works well when he collaborates with somebody. And I agree. I think that Memento and The Prestige are both kind of exceptional sort of writer-director collaborations. You know, DiCaprio had... Some input into the inception script, because much as he did more recently with Killers of the Flower Moon and kind of rerouted i think there quite fundamentally where that project was headed to a lesser degree, not to the same sort of structural degree, but just to a lesser degree he uh sort of pushed inception in a direction that made it more emotional and gave it more of a kind of emotional core um. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that he, uh, you know, he just collaborates exceptionally well, uh, which is kind of the thing you kind of almost forget. I always forget that, you know, about filmmakers. And I, particularly with the kind of the the really great ones, you sort of imagine that they must be kind of dictators on some level who sort of lose the ability to collaborate. But you just sort of remember, oh, no, of course, he's got to be good at collaboration, you know, like. So, yeah, I mean, I I think you're right about his, uh, his brother. And I think, too, there's something about having a sort of family member, you know, family, you know, a family, your family can tell you things, you know, they can be truthful to you. They can tell you if you're barking at the wrong tree in a way that maybe a sort of, you know, a, 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 just a straightforward collaborator can't, you know. Um, so I just think there's a degree of honesty between them that sort of really, really helped kick those uh, scripts into shape.
0: I read a lot of, you know, these books about uh, filmmakers and especially the, these auteurs. And you get so many stories about the stubbornness, the inability to collaborate or the, you know, like I think about Tarantino not wanting to credit Roger Avery on Pulp Fiction or whatever. And the the fact that so much of your conversations and stories also seem to reflect that Nolan seems to be a genuinely nice and well-liked guy. That's nice. It's, a, it's nice to have someone like that. Sometimes it's hard to find uh, celebrities who you don't have to deal with like the, the dark side of them. I don't know if he has a dark side, if that's what's uh, making him feel so guilty. I, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. And I hope he's I hope he's happy. You know, sometimes you watch these movies and you're like, God, he seems so brooding sometimes. Do you
3: know what? I mean, the, the film that it comes through most in, I think, uh, there's a sort of the, 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 there is a more ebullient kind of Nolan, which I think it's Inception. I think in Inception, you really get the sense of like, there's a very great sense of playfulness to that movie and also playfulness with others. The, the gang is all there kind of thing and they're on this sort of mission. And I, and just the tone of that movie too. I mean, it has a certain, it certainly has this kind of emotional tug to it. And I think kind of there's a kind of melancholy in there somewhere too. But, I also think, oh no, this is a kind of this is it's a it's a it's a this is a kind of a bigger, bully and playful movie. And I think that we're probably gonna see something like I think he's hinted that he wants to make something like that now. I think kind of Oppenheimer is definitely at the sort of darker end of the spectrum and uh, I don't think he is gone trapped, to make the next Bond picture, but it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't make something of that kind of nature, which is to say a sort of tack to the kind of the the center of the multiplex, you know? Um, A crowd, you know, a kind of uh, a a crowd pleaser. So, yeah, I mean, he definitely has a sort of, it's sort of dark. I wouldn't say it's interesting. Like he's got a very, very, I would say in person that he's not at all dark. But what he is, is extremely sceptical. You know, (laughs) like everything kind of gets x-rayed and sort of taken apart and sort of, and flipped and, you know, turned upside down. And then take him to pieces, and then he'll walk around the problem, and then he and then i'll put it back together and it's not so much darkness, although I could see that that might be that might have a kind of dark component that way of of, of thinking about the world, that kind of intense uh, sort of skepticism but that was the thing that came across most uh forcefully from kind of talking to him um and you know from also from talking his brother said much to say you know he said the same thing that like you know, you'll take an idea to him and he'll just absolutely dismantle it. (laughs) And you know, that's kind of good uh, because it means that it really gets put through the mill. Like it really has to sort of stand the test, the Nolan test to kind of, to survive. But yeah, you know, and I think that's in the movies too. Like you, they definitely express a lot of skepticism about human motive, Uh, you know, particularly selfish human motive. Like he's, he's very good on like selfishness. uh, I found like, if you watch those movies, there's, the, you know, like in Interstellar, he's kind of trying to work out, might human selfishness get in the way of saving humanity? <laughs> that's, the, that's the issue in that movie is like, might people turn out to be just too selfish not to think more than a generation ahead? That's quite a thing to put in a big summer movie, you know. It's lost
0: to me, too, that the, the Dr. Man is the name of uh, the antagonist toward the end there, right?
3: Oh, my God, I hadn't thought of that, but that's exactly it. You know, and in Dunkirk too. I mean, uh, that's definitely a different kind of thing. It's under war conditions, and of course, you know, it's got its own morality, its own ethics. But he's very—he shows people thinking in very self-interested ways, and uh, and I think it just goes to this kind of, as I say, it's this kind of great moral skepticism about the motives of other people's actions. Are they acting in their own best interests? And that generally tends to be the answer: yes, they are. You know, um, uh, so that is there's definitely something. Yeah, that's definitely a kind of dark. As I said, that's a there's a kind of ethical darkness to that. But at the same time, I guess it means that when somebody does act in a way that is devoid of self, there is something kind of resonant about it. And I kind of really like the ending of Dunkirk, where uh, the Tom Hardy goes on that very kind of noble mission to get arrested, basically, and help them by kind of strafing the the beach. But he knows he'll be captured as a result. So. There's a sort of selfless streak to that. You know, he definitely thinks that is, that's the definition of heroism, I think.
0: After the break, I'm talking with David Craig about one of the most impactful pieces of media depicting nuclear war, The Day After, which he asserts not only was a hit, but that it might have saved the world. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. So far, our show has been trying to solve the problem of how one incredibly cynical movie, Oppenheimer, became a huge hit, despite its seeming conclusion that we're all doomed. So to lighten the mood, let's talk about the day after.
3: One millisecond to take.
0: Maybe you're wondering how a 1983 made-for-TV movie set in the post-apocalyptic hellscape of a nuked Lawrence, Kansas, is my pivot toward optimism. I promise it's not just that I hate Kansas or something. David Craig's new book is Apocalypse Television, How the Day After Helped End the Cold War. He makes the case that this bleak movie may have actually saved the world. What was the day after? What what did it mean to people? Sure, the day after was a fictional, um,
1: what-if-imagined, cheaply-made television movie that described the impact of a nuclear bomb hitting Lawrence, Kansas and the aftermath.
0: Do you think the fact that it was on TV made a difference as opposed to like if it had come out just in theaters, it would have landed with people the way it did? 100%.
1: In fact, three weeks before the movie came out, a feature film based on almost the exact same premise appeared in movie theaters and nobody talks about it. And ironically, that was a movie called Testament made by um, American Playhouse, uh, PBS, but they had secured a theatrical distribution deal, and as a result, no one knew even that it existed because people go to the movie theaters for a different reason than they turned on their television back in 1983.
0: What did they turn on their
1: televisions for? Well, they uh, consumed all sorts of content through television at the in that, in that time, and now even more so through streaming. But the same network that carried your nightly news with Walter Cronkite was the same network you stayed tuned to watch game shows and cop dramas and sitcoms, and it was beamed into the comfort of your home and your living room, so it wasn't the sort of thing that you necessarily had to spend money, um, hire a babysitter, and go out and pay for parking to go witness, and that's in many ways why feature films or theatrical releases remain more of a uh, a way to distract yourself from the world, and television... Um, as one executive at the network described, became the only book on the shelf. That was how most people came to know or understand much about the world was from turning on their TV.
0: When did you first see The Day After? Believe
1: it or not, not until many, many years later. I had seen Testament, the other film that I mentioned. and I One of my other favorite films from that era is called War Games, which was a theatrical fiction film uh, based on a true story um, that I have loved forever. But it was a long time after that I saw the day after.
0: What was your reaction to it?
1: It's creaky. It doesn't hold up as a disaster movie. But again, it's a situational sort of phenomenon, which is you had to be sitting in your living room with your family watching a movie that was imagining what the world was very likely going to be like in the next five years. And um, in that instance, it took on a whole other level of resonance. By the way, there was a similar phenomenon that happened in the UK with a movie that the BBC produced called Threads that aired about six months after the day after. And the same phenomenon was witnessed with everyone tuning in to watch that. So at that moment in the world, in the news, in the back of everyone's mind was the awareness or the, the pre- belief that we were probably all going to die um, from nuclear um, war. And there didn't seem to be much we could do about it. And these movies Or in many ways, um, one last effort to try to reverse course, which it did.
0: Do you think that art like the day after or art in general really has the power to change or even save the world? Storytelling
1: has always had the greatest potential to alter the course of human history, not always positively. But I would also argue that the medium of social media is vastly different. We live in a very different time than we did in the ni- 1980s, where there were only three networks that most people consumed all of their knowledge and information from. Obviously, we live not only in the Internet age, but in the social media age. And so it requires a new and different set of strategies for how do we harness this new media technology in ways that are different. So the uh, the notion that we might want to produce another version or variation of the day after is a bit wasted in in this time where we're, we're living in an age of content abundance and unlimited access to knowledge and information. But there are new media technologies and new ways that we can harness those technologies to, to go about trying to produce real world change and reverse course from some of the more precarious and existential crises that we are
0: currently facing. Do you see anybody doing that successfully now?
1: All over the place, um, I happen to also be as a professor who teaches creator culture and creator studies and social media, and i've been uh, studying the fact that uh, across social media and all around the world, people are harnessing that technology to build online communities who care passionately about numerous issues and causes. And um, their ability to understand what makes social media different from streaming services or old world cable and broadcasting technologies is what gives them this huge opportunity and agency to go about crafting and creating change and positive progressive change in the world.
0: You don't think then that uh, Don't Look Up is the one that's going to save the world? Uh, It's
1: funny. That's the third time this, this month that that movie has been brought to our attention. I don't think that you rule out all the resources uh, that we have available to us, even if that includes telling these um, high profile, celebrity driven, satirical films about the possibility of, of Earth's collapse. I think it requires all hands on deck The Hopefully, the lesson that that I hope readers of the book take away is that fundamentally, it requires strategy and commitment. It requires understanding what are the ways in which you can get to that media and use that technology and hijack that industry and reach the communities and the networks of people who are invested and willing to spend their resources to try to make change happen.
0: One of the ways you describe the day after in the book, uh, particularly as Nicholas Myers getting ready to direct it, is the phrase civic duty comes up, that it's there's some civic duty to tell this story that could potentially lead to you know all kinds of different paths for the future. And would you say that it achieved what it set out to do?
1: Not to give away the twists and the turn in the, in the narrative, but we know that it did give President Reagan the opportunity to finally come forward with the fact that he's a nuclear abolitionist that he hated all nuclear weapons. And it caused him, or at least uh, was one of the reasons why he proceeded to pursue a different path towards disarmament with Soviet Union, which ultimately led to the end of the arms race. So um, in my estimation, everyone, including Nicholas Meyer involved in this project, were contributing in their civic duty to pull us back from the brink of extinction.
0: It makes me think as well that something like the day after Threads, were those really the last of these movies that were trying to depict nuclear war in that way? It almost seems like the anxiety around that shifted enough that it was not something that influenced art so much uh, in the time between maybe the day after Threads and now maybe Oppenheimer.
1: Well, there's a, a number of factors. First of all, it was the end of the broadcast era when there were only um, three viewing audiences in the vast majority of the U.S., um, but also... um it was also um, the peak of the atomic age and uh, the end of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the disarmament um, that, that pulled us back from the escalation of the arms race bought us a reprieve. And there wasn't much as much incentive to go forward with continuing to push that particular concern forward. There are plenty more existential crises that we now are dealing with that we still want to um, figure out ways to try to address and reverse and, and improve those conditions. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, you uh, might miscount the fact that most of the zombie pictures that we've seen over the last 30 years continue to stem usually from some form of nuclear war. Um, all the X-Men franchise was based in the race for the atom. Um, the, um. There were a number of series that aired in the 90s and 2000s that had atomic war in the background. There was one series explicitly, I'm forgetting the name of it, that was all about a small Midwestern town in the wake of, of World War III. So there were um, there have been numerous nuclear films over the years, but the urgency and the crisis, um, I would say, dialed down a little bit um, because it's been replaced by a number of other precipitating and more anxious concerns.
0: What do you make of Oppenheimer's success? It seems like nobody really could have seen that it would be as big as it was.
1: Um, well, it's a testament, obviously, to the
0: filmmakers and the appetite that I think audiences
1: have for more sophisticated, mature fare. Um, as someone who developed numerous Oppenheimer projects in my producing career, I'm both thrilled and, and not surprised to know that this is a story that would resonate. I don't think anyone could have anticipated that it would have had such a huge uh, box office appeal. But what's curious is, is that um, there is no comparable kind of response to the Oppenheimer film is their war to all of these movies like Threads and The Day After and Testament, because it's not, wasn't grounded in or rooted in this notion that we are still living in a very urgently concerning nuclear age. There are rogue states and atomic fission material out there that can cause and wreak all sorts of havoc in the world. So it was again, to my earlier point uh, perceived mainly as a beautifully made diversion, and one that was extremely well-crafted and well-deserving of all sorts of war- awards, but not necessarily intended or being or used as a vehicle for uh, advocacy or change.
0: Well, yeah, as I think about the ending, it almost seems like we're done. You know, we're sort of back to this idea that it's going to happen at some point. It's inevitable, right? The, what can you possibly do about the chain reaction that's been started? That's sort of the takeaway, isn't it?
1: That's correct. It's a two-act structure, which is ironic for a three-hour film. It was the rise and the fall of Oppenheimer, and the the ultimate takeaway from the film was it's going to end. The world's going to end. We have no way to reverse course. There's nothing you can do. The genie's out of the bottle, and there's no way to reverse the damage. I wrote an uh, essay recently that was in Newsweek that basically argued that had the filmmakers um, gone with the framework of the day after, they would have seen Oppenheimer's vision realized in reversing the course that we were headed on with the invention of the A-bomb.
0: Is that part of what people are reacting to in the movie? Do you think that sense that we're doomed? Is that now the the anxiety that people are looking for in art, if that's what they feel in reality?
1: No, not necessarily. I think there's always a huge amount of uh, obsession with uh, uh, great men in history biopics. Um, Every now and then one of these great films that are really beautifully crafted come along and take us through some sort of um, larger than life experience. And I think, there's a few filmmakers who could do it as well as Christopher Nolan. But then you add to that the spectacular level of spectacle that is uh, surrounds the nature of the nuclear bomb itself. In many ways, I think the distance that we've had from nuclear narratives allowed for a whole new audience to come in and bear witness to this. But for the most part, my and I have no empirical evidence to, to prove this, but I, my, my impression is that most audiences came out of there going uh, treating it like a, a work of fiction. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that happened, but don't necessarily see the relevance to what's happening today. And that's many ways what made the day after also quite remarkable through its kind of what if science fiction fantasy approach, which was borrowed from an earlier feature film called The China Syndrome. It was able to convince audiences to imagine what could be and therefore motivate them to keep that from happening as opposed to what might have been Oppenheimer's very much a history movie.
0: As far as movies that are making an impact on people, warning people, one that I probably wouldn't have expected to be the one that someone like President Biden would be haunted by, but reportedly he was, was Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, uh, which he found reportedly so terrifying that he signed an executive order, which according to the White House verbiage, directs the most sweeping actions ever taken to protect Americans from the potential risks of AI systems. So I don't know, is Mission Impossible was it seven? Is, is that our, our closest day after we have this year?
1: Oh, gosh, uh, that's a loaded question. And I also didn't see, am I, but I am familiar with AI. Um, and uh, I think that we are living in a, a moment of tremendous fear and precarity around the way in which all technology is causing so much disruption. We've lived it so, and witnessed it so abundantly through the rise of um, social media and, and the Internet that now there's a uh, a baked in, built in, kind of fear of any new technology that comes along, and um, witnessing what I guess, Professor, uh, that uh, President Biden did in MI might might have been a precipitating factor. But I, I want to call back to the fact that it was also uh, Vice President Biden who uh, draw and shed light on the impact that sitcom Will and Grace had. On raising awareness of gay lives and gay respectability and, and, and in many ways helped lead to President Obama coming out in favor of gay marriage, which then, of course, um, was picked up by the Supreme Court. So um, there are numerous ways in which entertainment narratives, mediums, formats have all found ways to iteratively affect change on the way in which society thinks, the way people think, and the way policy is enacted. So I I wouldn't discount or undercut any of those roles. All I would just simply add is that if we we can no longer leave it solely in the hands of the filmmakers and the storytellers and the Hollywood executives, uh, as described in my book, we now have the power within the palm of our own hands to try to enact and make change. And we ought to learn how to use that more effectively.
0: A difference between Mission Impossible and The Day After is the day after is bringing the horror to the familiar, right? The idea that your neighborhood could be going through this. And the idea that Mission Impossible can also be terrifying because this threat could kill Tom Cruise is just a very different way of relating to media. But I was thinking in terms of our star system, in terms of our age of superheroes, maybe there is something terrifying about taking these seemingly invincible people who will never age, who can run for miles at all times, and actually giving them a real threat. It's its a weird way to try to express problems, but I guess it worked for Biden. So maybe there's something there. I don't know.
1: Well, I think it's really curious to think about a number of the film franchises that we've seen over the years that have introduced, for example, um, elevated and escalated concerns around climate change. So if you think about the Avengers um, and how they um, very much were uh, rooted in the notion of a coal and trying to finite amount of resources in the universe and little recourse except leaving up to our own ingenuity to save us from um, impending doom and damage. Um, the Kingsmen had the call as a premise which was also rooted in the, the, the peril and threat of climate change. I wouldn't rule out the cumulative effect of these films at least subconsciously in placing in people's minds, the fact that these are legitimate and real threats. When they appear first in science fiction, as many um, stories have first emerged, um, they often wind up, wind their way into the front of people's minds and concerns and anxieties.
0: What are some of the pieces of media that you find interesting today that you think might uh, have the potential to move the dial on an issue?
1: There's two responses to that. One is, is that I, again, find social media to be, despite all of the amazing amount of toxicity and fear-mongering and disinformation on there, um, one of the most powerful tools, if used correctly, to harness communities who care about various objects. I've produced conferences recently on what we call creators for change who engage in advocacy and activism. And that includes people who are game players on Twitch who are also raising billions of dollars for children's hospitals and or millions of dollars for various causes and social concerns. And I I think we undervalue the the possibility there. The other uh, response to your question is is that I don't think the answer lies solely in these um, large singular narrative uh, stories that we um, knew from the late part of the 20th century. I think um, change is happening every day across the other formats. Of media. I think about reality television, talent competition shows. Um, I, I think about the incredible breadth of diversity of, of representation that occurs and a lot of those more lower budget formats that um, have normalized the cultures and lives of people who haven't typically been featured in media.
0: We'll meet again, don't know where. Don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Could Oppenheimer save the world like the day after before it? Is it trying to? Will we ever be able to relax in the post atomic age? I'm not sure. But we can all be thankful, I guess, that Christopher Nolan saved Robert Downey Jr. from the bombs of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Keep the conversation going. Follow The Entertainment on Facebook or Instagram and let us know what you think about how societal attitudes are manifesting in our culture. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and we'd love it if you gave us a review. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 915 FM Omaha Public Radio. It is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from Oppenheimer, Barbie, Memento, Dr. Strangelove, and The Day After. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.